welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where Here's Frank, Scott, Chris, and Adam. Sophomore slumps, are they real or all a hoax? Welcome to a special Mythbusters edition of Fantasy Baseball Today on Thursday, May 28th. Frank Stample here alongside, virtually of course, Scott White and Adam Azer. Guys, we're going to take a look at some sophomores today for fantasy baseball purposes, which got me thinking, what were Scott and Adam like as sophomores in high school? Who cares about college? I don't think, no. I want to go back to high school, way back in the day. 15-year-old Scott White, I assume roaming around somewhere in Georgia. I, I don't even know if that's true. I just know you're a Braves fan, but. Uh, yes, I was in Georgia. I was in the same school system from kindergarten through senior year of high school in Peachtree City, Georgia. Uh, McIntosh High School was the high school. It's where Dwight Smith Jr. of the Orioles went. Um, and as a sophomore, I don't know. I don't know. What was I like? I, I mean, you think I look like you, I shared a picture on Twitter a couple weeks back from like when I first started at CBS. Uh, I started when I was 23, this picture, I was 25, but I looked like a child (laughs) is the point as a 25 year old. And then I shared one from when I was 30 and I looked like a child then too. So if you think I looked like a child at 25 and 30, then you can imagine how childlike I appeared at 15. I was not, I was not a hit with the ladies, let's just say. So oh. I'm imagining a, a young 15-year-old Scott looking like, I guess, an 8-year-old at that point. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you always look half your age, Scott. <laughs> Pretty much. You're a lucky man. Adam, what are the juicy details? What did, what did 15-year-old Adam Azer look like? Yeah, or, I- or act like? Pretty baby-faced as well. Um, I went to college. Just I didn't even shave with a razor. I was using like an electric razor in college. I didn't have... Sorry for the details. I didn't have any chest hair when I went to college. But after college, <laughs> I just became like a beast. Uh, so You hit I, puberty in college? I, I hit puberty before that, but I, puberty, puberty hit me in college. <laughs> uh, as a sophomore in high school, I was... I was very like baby face but i i would say so i was really popular in middle school i was like kind of the man okay <laughs> before people were going to parties and drinking a lot that was my that was like my wheelhouse you know having fun without doing the bad stuff um so middle school was great for me and then i went to a different high school like i didn't wasn't in the same school system so i had a few friends but i had to make all new friends so freshman year was kind of like a redo but I would say sophomore year, I started to come into my own. I started Ooh. playing guitar, so that was fun. And that opened me up to the music crowd. Um, I started, yeah, I started getting back back toward the top of the popularity chain in a school that had like 106 people in my graduating class when basically everyone was popular. Uh, you know, so so I I enjoyed. I think I enjoyed sophomore year. It was a fun time. You you mentioned the shaving. I sophomore year of high school was the first time I shaved my face. I do remember that. That's that might have been the same for me, but I yeah. remember using an electric razor and I didn't realize where the hair went. Uh-huh. It was like under the <laughs> electric blades. 
and I never cleaned. I didn't clean it out for like so long. I had no idea where it went. <laughs> oh, did did somebody show you how to shave? Did like your dad show you how to shave? No, because too, for me, I was embarrassed. It, 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 yeah, I had you know I had that like goofy like oh. very thin looking mustache starting Ew. to form, <laughs> and finally I was like I, I got to do something about this. So I dug out one of my sister's razors, a new one from under the sink, <laughs> and just and just went to work with it. Oh, and that was great. how I I taught myself to shave. Yeah, uh, my friend Tim taught me how to shave in in as a freshman in college. Uh, I believe with a with a blade. <laughs> I knew how to do it with the electric. <laughs> yeah, really weird. Really weird. Uh, I really hope this doesn't come off as pretentious, but I think the best way to describe myself back then was I was like a perfect blend of jock meets nerd. And I've always kind of prided myself in that because I always played a bunch of sports. I played basketball, soccer, tennis. This is my sophomore year of high school. But I also walked around like playing Pokemon on my Nintendo DS. So I kind of was the best of both worlds. And of course, trying my best to crave the attention of women while wearing oversized clothing and playing Pokemon, so that didn't didn't really get the job done. <laughs> Oversized Frank, clothing, yeah. Frank, best of both worlds, Stanford. New, new nickname. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, now, when it comes to sophomores in fantasy baseball, I have some data that we'll get into later on. But for now, give me one sophomore player that you are worried about, Scott. Uh, sophomore player I am worried about. Uh, well... I, there, there are obvious, obvious cases of players that I think we all agree overachieved, like a John Means who finished second in the AL and Rookie of the Year voting, right? Um, but you know nobody's putting much stock in him in fantasy, so that's that's not somebody who I think is most appropriate to pick out here. I would say, I, I think people are a little too maybe excited about Oscar Mercado. He his pay, his home run and steals pace last year. I think he had 15 of each in like two thirds of the season. So that's a pretty nice pace, but I'm not confident, you know, unless you're, unless you're stealing bases in an elite clip, I'm always concerned that you're going to just start running less. So, you know, I don't know that we can totally bank on the steals there and the power, like the actual bat of ball profile doesn't lend itself to much power. So I think he may have overachieved with the home run pace too. And he, he may just end up being a Jag, Oscar Mercado. So I'd say I'm a little worried about him. Yeah, I definitely am worried about the power as well. I don't think we get anywhere close to the pace that he was on last year over the course of a full season, maybe more of just 10, 12 homers. But he did have some really big steal seasons in the minors. He had 31 back in 2018. He had 38 back in 2017. His sprint speed last year was 97th percentile. So maybe someone who takes a step back in the power but can still be reliable for speed is Oscar Mercado. But yeah, I mean, I would say an interesting name. Adam, who is someone you're a sophomore you are worried about entering the season? Well, I think Pete Alonso is probably the, the easy answer. I just think he's going a little too high. But I would say Tommy Edmond. It's like minor league track record's not that good. He's a batting average guy. He hits a lot of ground balls. He has almost no power. He uh, doesn't walk ever. So I think you have to look at players that don't have a lot to fall back on if their one skill doesn't hold up. And I guess for him, it's batting average and steals. But if he doesn't hit, if he doesn't hit for a good average, he might lose playing time. He might not play. It helps that they have the universal DH this year. That definitely helps. But 
I don't want to I don't want to make the same mistake with Edmund that we made with Harrison Bader, who had a pretty good rookie year and was just awful last year, but at least he's a really good defender. Um so uh, yeah, Edmund will have his opportunities for sure, but I don't want to make him the centerpiece of my steals. I, I know Scott really likes him a lot, but uh, well, I could just I yeah, could just see it going I mean, wrong. I think it's different from Bader because Bader like I I I wasn't among those caught by surprise, Bader taking a step back. He struck out like 30% of the time as a rookie. And I kind of take exception to you saying Edmund has no power either. The guy slugged 500 last year, had an ISO around 200, 11 homers, 7 triples, 17 doubles in 92 games. Now, the minor yeah. league... The minor yeah. league track record doesn't show a lot of power. I'll give you that. And maybe it was just a fluke, but well, the, the triples really help. Yeah. I, I, I should amend it to his home run power. Like he's on like a less than 20 home run pace last year. So yeah, he's not a slugger, but go on. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think, you know, we see a lot of examples of guys who find their power stroke in the majors, even before the juice ball era really began. That was something that happened. Uh, with fair amount of regularity. So I'm a little suspicious of it, especially since much of the home run production was com- confined to September. And maybe he just got hot right when the season was winding down and he didn't have a chance to cool off again. But, um, you know, the data really supports what he did. And what he did was pretty much um, perform like a must-start player in across all formats, but especially, of course, Roto, where steals are in such high demand. Yeah, I could easily end up regretting this, but mine is Boba Shit. And it's basically because of the cost. So I would agree with you on Pete Alonzo, Adam. I'm likely not going to own any Pete Alonzo, but the ADP for Boba Shit is sixty seven point six. And I can just find a shortstop I like in both formats that go uh after Boba Shit. In head to head points, I would rather have Marcus Semyon who goes um, you know, a little bit later than Bo Bichette. 70 picks later, you can get Corey Seager. I know he probably doesn't have the same upside as Bichette. And in a Roto League, I'll take Tim Anderson. Like, just in a vacuum, I'll take Tim Anderson over Bo Bichette, and, and Bichette goes uh, 43 picks ahead of Tim Anderson. Uh, one thing that I noticed, under Charlie Montoya, last season, the Blue Jays had 51 steals. They were 26th in baseball, I think, you know, it's hard to technically use this stat because it's dependent on the personnel that you have on your team. It's like, if you don't have players that are going to run, you're going to rank low in stolen bases, which I realize. And also, with Bichette, he had four steals and four caught stealing last year. Scott, am I looking into this too much? Because I feel like if he just runs into outs, he could potentially get the red light while on the base paths. And that would affect his fantasy value quite a bit. Yeah, that's my concern with for anybody who... who I. I <laughs> Like it doesn't, it, it almost doesn't even matter how successful they are. They just, players tend to run less in the majors than they did in the minors. And when they're a middle of the order threat with the bat, that becomes yeah, even more the case. And, and Bichette, I mean, he looks like he's going to be that type of hitter. Uh, I mean, he was, he was a stud, even with maybe an underwhelming steals total for the amount of time he was in the majors last year. He was a stud with the bat. And I am. I think that probably sets him up to be the sort of guy who would fake people out in his sophomore season. Like, okay, I can just I can just count on this guy being a stud. He was a top flight prospect. He comes and performs as well as anybody hoped he could. And so, yeah, that might be that might be somebody who catches people off guard by taking a step back with a little more exposure and everything else. And 
And look, the expected stats, he he outperformed the expected stats in his short time in the majors. It's it's too small of a sample for me to look to to read that much into it, but if it's if it's too small of a sample to read into the expected stats, it's too small of a sample to know exactly what we're getting from Bo Bichette either. So I think that's a pretty good call. I'm I don't share your concerns because I don't think the cost is high enough to really scare me away. But I I get what you're saying, and I think it's especially as deep as shortstop is, uh, it's generally not worth worth uh, selling out for Bichette to whatever extent you'd need to. I'm kind of regretting, like I missed the most obvious case of a sophomore I'm worried about. And that's Fernando Tatis who's <laughs> in my bust column. And every time we have a bust discussion, I talk about him. Uh, yeah, that's, that's somebody who's cost second round concerns me. That's one that reminds me kind of, I think the, the, when I think of sophomore slumps, kind of the all time example in my mind is Brett Lowry of the Blue Jays at the time. I listened to your 2018 podcast between you and Adam last night, Team Scam. It was just you two guys, and you brought up the same name then, Brett Lowry. Yep, yep. <laughs> it was, that, was, that was a devastating one because he comes up 2011's the year. He's 21 years old, big prospect. It's 293 with nine homers, seven steals, and a 953 OPS in 43 games. He's going in like the third round of fantasy drafts the next year. And he ends up hitting 273 with 11 homers, 13 steals, a 729 OPS over a full season. So, like, just not, I don't even think he was rosterable in standard size leagues at the end of the year. And, uh, and I've, and, you know, most of his career was pretty much like that uh, for as long as he stuck around. He only, he only made it through his age 26 season, Brett Lowry. So he's only 30 now. <laughs> hmm. But, but yeah, that's, that's an all time example. And that's, well, I don't think Fernando Tatis's career trajectory is going to follow that same path. I think it could end up being a similar situation where people are just paying, uh, presuming he's a stud already when there may be some growth still ahead of him. We'll get back to the sophomores a little bit later on. Today on the show, we're also going to look at risers and fallers in keeper leagues. That'll be our email of the day. We've got a prospect evaluation for Logan Gilbert. Your emails fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. But let's go right there. Email of the day from Colin in Houston. Who are the biggest risers and fallers in ADP for keeper leagues? Guys like Mackenzie Gore and Joe Adele fly up the board, and guys like Nelson Cruz and Justin Verlander fall. Who are some more surprise names that could be big risers and fallers in keeper leagues? Scott, you have a bit of a baffled look on your face. Yeah, I, w- I was just confused whether he means based on, you know, some of the changes happening around the league for a prospective 2020 season, or if he means just relative to a redraft league who gains and loses value in a keeper league. How are you interpreting this? I would probably go with the latter, but something else that popped into my mind on this was, you know, maybe you could even interpret it as, you know, what if the season, what if just the season doesn't happen? Right, like who's most affected? Like someone just one year older. Like who's yeah. to say that Verlander's just like, all right, let me just hang him up because we didn't play this year. You know, it's crazy things can happen. But let's let's just go with the latter. You're playing in a keeper yeah. league. Who would you who would you boost up, and who would fall a little bit potentially in in a keeper league ADP? 
there'd have to be a lot of keepers in this league, first of all, for it to make that big of a difference. If every team's just keeping four or five guys, then there's so much turnover happening from year to year that I don't think you need to fixate so much on age. But yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of starting pitchers, particularly who are getting up there in years and and who when we do these dynasty startup mocks, which we've done a few times this uh, this extra long preseason, guys like Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander and Charlie Morton, who who was talked about maybe retiring after this season, Zach Granke, they all fall several rounds. Charlie Blackman, J.D. Martinez, anybody basically who's on the wrong side of thirty two. I'd say people get pretty worried about. Uh, and then players who rise, I mean, yeah, spe- specifically based on recent talk, we've heard Mackenzie Gore. It sounds like he could be a big contributor as early as this year. And Nate Pearson of the Blue Jays, who was probably the prospect getting the most hype in spring training. And now he'll probably have a job from the get-go. Spencer Howard of the Phillies, Dylan Carlson of the Cardinals. Uh, again, it'd have to be it have to every team would have to be keeping a good number of players for for me to go too deep into the prospect pool in a keeper league like you're not going to stash Julio Rodriguez I don't think in a league where you're only keeping five guys who knows how many years you'll be stashing him but those ones who are close to contributing they they do get a healthy bump yeah, Alex Verdugo was another name for me that I think would be a riser as well. Jesus Lazardo is a name that we continue to talk about and you wrote about with your, just in general, ADP risers and fallers last week, Scott, where he's a guy that's kind of skyrocketing up boards throughout the pandemic. Edwin Encarnacion, I think, is another name that obviously falls. He's on the wrong side of 32 there. Uh, Adam, you know something that Scott mentioned there was it, this shouldn't affect how you draft or ADP if there's five keepers or less. Does that seem like a fair amount to you? Yeah. I'm just thinking maybe even more. Yeah, I'd go even higher. I just I just picked five because that's a kind of a round number. Yeah. But I, I don't know. The, maybe like seven, eight is where it, it really starts to change for me. Look, there's, a, there's an obvious kind of approach to this keeper question, right? Younger guys move up, older guys move down. Charlie Morton, this could be his last year. So you might have him for one season. Uh, you have to be careful with Justin Verlander, obviously, as the email mentioned. And you move up the young players. You move up the Glaber Torres, Jordan Alvarez crew, whatever. But Alvarez, obviously, has got this knee thing. So be careful with that. Uh, I find it a little bit hard to believe that this guy is going to have like chronic knee problems and his career is going to be ruined by it. But I guess it's not out of the question. I want to caution people on Nolan Arenado. I think there's a chance this is his last year with the Rockies. And even if he's a very good player, there's no way. it's Well, he's probably not going to be as good. Not to mention he's getting to the age where he'll be past his prime anyway. But I think he could definitely be traded. Charlie Blackman, I don't think he's getting traded. But as much as I like drafting Charlie Blackman, because nobody else seems to, I still acknowledge that his skills might be declining and he's getting older and he might not be very good uh, much longer. Um, let's see. Uh, who else? Uh, Chris Paddock, I love. I, I, I'm having trouble separating this from like a ADP <laughs> discussion. Like I love Paddock this year, but mm-hmm. I just think his future is so extremely bright. So he would move yeah. up. I was going to say something similar. Like as as much as I've, talked about Fernando Tis being a potential bust, Vladimir Guerrero, the same thing. You're talking a keeper context. It, 
those concerns more or less go out the window for me. I'm thinking more about the, uh, the long term and what they could provide for me than, than what might go wrong for them in 2020 in a redraft league. Yeah. And I think maybe Shohei Otani is one of the more interesting players at some point, is he just going to become like the most dominant player in baseball aside from a select few, you know? And I guess, does not matter what your league format is? Will he ever be able to realize it with his fantasy production? But what we've seen from Otani as a big leaguer is pretty special. And depending on the ways you can use him, maybe if they take the kid gloves off at some point next year, maybe Shohei Otani is just a first round pick. Yeah, Joe Madden was talking about early on in spring training, even in the offseason, he was talking about playing Otani as a hitter on the same day that he pitches, like basically not really giving him any time off, just trying to get the most out of him as he possibly can. You know, maybe, I don't know how smart that is because that might make him break down sooner rather than later, but, you know, at least an 848 OPS each of his first two seasons as a hitter, and we remember two years ago what he did as a pitcher, the strikeout ability is just massive. Splitter is an unreal pitch for Otani. Really good points on Nolan Arenado there. Uh, Adam, 995 OPS in his career at home in Coors Field, 799 on the road. No, I don't think he'll be a 799 OPS hitter. If he just were traded to the Cardinals, for example, for example, I think he'd probably be more of like an 850 OPS guy, which is a good player, but it's not a first-round player. It's not a second-round player either. So, yeah, definitely a name to keep in mind is Nolan Arenado. Some news and notes. The latest offer from the MLB owners, LOL. Mm, what'd you th- what do you think of it? <laughs> yeah, not, not a fan, huh? No, it's not too good. The owners proposed a sliding scale where the highest salaries would be hit the hardest by the pay cuts. Under this proposed deal, a player set to make $20 million this season originally uh, in 162 games would take in $5.15 million. So basically a quarter of their normal salary while playing half the games. So that's definitely not going to happen. The MLB Players Association already responded. Uh, The players want 100 or more games, and they want full prorated salaries. So we'll see what happens. Uh, There was this quote from Max Scherzer. He's one of the eight players on their executive uh, subcommittee. He said, after discussing the latest developments with the rest of the players, there's no reason to engage with MLB in any further compensation reductions. We have previously negotiated a pay cut in the version of prorated salaries, and there's no justification to accept a second pay cut based upon the current information the union has received. I'm glad to hear other players voicing the same viewpoint and believe MLB's economic strategy would completely change if all documentation were to become public information. Doesn't doesn't sound too good right now. Well, it's hard hard to have this argument um, and know which side to take without really knowing what the owners are losing really. I mean, like, I don't think every owner, every ownership group is like, they're probably losing money in a lot of their businesses. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know where to fall on this. I think that this pro- proposal is kind of ridiculous. Like to ask Mike Trout to have $6 million instead of like 35 million or whatever it is, um, is silly. Uh, you know, this needs, this was not a good proposal, but I know a lot of people are just going to be like, Oh, players are so damn greedy or oh, those billionaires are ridiculous. And I don't like, I don't know where, what the truth is. Cause look, if you want to just be technical, Frank, a player making $20 million a year, only getting paid $6 million. 
25% of people are like out of work, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know that anybody's crying for that person either, but it's very nuanced and there's a lot of information we don't have, but this was a strange suggestion. They really should just give them the, I think they should just give them the prorated salaries. That's what I think. But I, you know, yeah. 82 games prorated salaries seems fair to me. Yeah. I mean, what do I know? There's, there's, there's so much, there's so much that isn't publicly available, which I guess is what Scherzer's talking about. So it's, nobody really knows the full extent of any of it, but what I, um, what, what gets me is people reacting. Okay. There's not going to be a season because Scherzer's taking this hard line. The players association's taking this hard line. Okay. Look, things are getting contentious. This obviously means the season isn't going to happen. Like, these things are always contentious and I feel like there's just so much out there in the public than, than was true in past instances of these kind of labor negotiations. So we're, we're kind of hanging on every, every volley between the MLB and the MLBPA and it's, it's not totally healthy. Um, I don't know. Maybe they won't come to an agreement this time. It's obviously a weird time with a lot of factors to consider that haven't had to be considered in the past. And maybe it'll just prove to be too much, but like you don't have to commit. <laughs> you, you don't, you don't have to decide before the negotiations done. It's going to be, it's, it's going to, they're going to finish negotiating at some point and there will either be a season or there won't be. And we can react to it. Then we don't have to live and die with every report along the way, because it, it it's not going to change the final outcome. They really, though, I do think sh- whatever financial agreement they come to should favor the players because they are risking a lot more yeah. health-wise. And I even read today in the New York Post something that I had never read, um, that the, the possibility that players like John Lester and Anthony Rizzo might not even play because they're cancer survivors which I didn't think put people at risk if they weren't like still undergoing treatments at a, you know, that, that they were at a high risk, but there might be some players who have underlying medical conditions and wouldn't be able to play this year, but the players themselves are most likely going to be fine. Um, but they have to live their lives. They have to go home to people. And they, obviously what I'm saying is the players are going to be the ones that have a much greater chance of picking up the virus and they could be fine as we know, but they might, unknowingly transmit it to someone else. They'll get tested a lot, but still not, not every day, not every time they leave the ballpark. So they should get more financial weight because they are taking on almost all of the risk. The owners don't have to go anywhere near it. Uh, That needs to be factored in for sure. My other non-negotiation news item for the day, Byron Buxton is 100% after having shoulder surgery in September. Uh, He had an 827 OPS on August 1st last season, that was higher than Starling Marte, Nick Castellanos, and Kyle Schwarber at the time. Uh, Buxton finished no lower than third in all of baseball in sprint speed each of the past seasons. The guy can absolutely fly. Um, the highest barrel rate of his career last year, 8.3%. Average exit velocity, career high, 89.3 miles per hour. Launch angle was a career high. Uh, and his 23% strikeout rate was also a career best. So... It seems like he was taking strides in the right direction, Scott. And it seems like, are you are you down on him compared to the consensus? Because he's still someone that I want to take in a roto league. I probably am. I don't know that it's fair to be 
I'm just, I, I, I may be suffering a little bit from Byron Buxton fatigue because I look yeah. at the numbers and it's absolutely true. I mean, the strikeout rate greatly improved last year. His uh, fly ball rate greatly improved last year. Like ground ball rate went, was down from 43.3 in 2018 to 29.4 last year. So he did a much better job at all of the things I cared about. And yet, you know, missed so much of the season that I, I don't know exactly where it would have ended up. And I don't know if he would have been able to sustain it. And I still don't know if he can stay on the field. Uh, but just the fact that he's a viable base dealer on top of it in Roto Leagues, at least, I should be pretty enthusiastic about taking him. So that's, that's one I've been struggling with. Find me a player that goes later than Buxton that has more league-winning potential. Buxton's ADP right now, 177.8, according to Fantasy Pros. case for someone after that that could, I mean, yes, he'd be a post-type sleeper, (laughs) the the very definition, but still only 26. And with the improvements he made, he he could be such a bargain. Garrett yeah, Hampson. I, I don't want to go too far that direction either, because for even with the improvements he made, his XBA was 249. His X slug was 433. I mean, those are not good expected stats. It's not a bad ISO, though. It's just the batting average was so low. It's not right. a great ISO, but it's not my, I, I guess my broader take on Buxton right now is I no longer see him as a guy who has like first round type of potential or maybe even top five round potential but I do think he has must start potential so you know find somebody who's going after him that I think could be a higher impact player well I mean just going by ADP I don't think I don't think a guy like Willie Calhoun's going to contribute in as many categories obviously but I I do see the overall ceiling is maybe a little higher right now Luke Voigt, you know, he has playing time concerns, but I do like the ceiling there. Scott, I, yeah, there Mark Canna, names, but not that many. Mark Canna, yeah. man, and Garrett Hampson. Those are two of your boys. They go after Byron Buxton. So uh, those were two names that stood out to me. But yeah, look, ultimately, I, I'm in on Buxton. The, the biggest, the, the key number for him is games played. He's only played more than 92 games in a season once. That was back in 2017. And he had a very good season. 16 homers, 29 steals, 253 batting average. So it's just a matter of him staying on the field. He's going to bat low in the lineup, one of the best lineups in baseball in the Minnesota Twins. Uh, it's just a matter of him staying healthy. And right now, he's 100%. So let's well, see what... Can I... I just want to add one more thing. Yep. He is yet another player on the Twins who had a like career best year, basically. Um, every, Nelson Cruz had his best season. Mitch Garver, up and down the lineup everybody just overperformed. It, it's the weirdest thing. Everyone. Was there one person that didn't overperform on the, on the twins? <laughs> Eddie Rosario, maybe? I mean, I think C- CJ Crone was someone who I think underperformed. He's, he had really good stack cast numbers too, but I think his, I ex- got rid of him. Yeah. You go. And, and that's yeah, why they right? got rid of him. That's why I got rid of him. <laughs> Can't keep up with the rest of us, man. But there's something to it, Adam, because they were consciously trying to pull the ball and lift the ball more than ever. So there is a reason that you see all these career hard hit rates and exit velocities and launch angles higher for the Twins players than ever before is because they were consciously trying to do something. Didn't you say their hitting coach went somewhere? Yes, he went to the Miami Marlins. Oh, the Marlins. Okay. Yes, he is is their hitting 
what was it? I think it was like hitting coordinator, offensive coordinator. It's like, what? Okay. This isn't football. But <laughs> with that, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we will talk about these sophomore slumps, slumps and try and debunk the theory here on Fantasy Baseball Today. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. Nothing beats a weekend away with the family in the great outdoors, whether it's camping, hiking, river rafting, or anything in between. With third-row seating, nobody is left out. The entire family can experience the thrill together. And nobody wants a dead phone. Available dual wireless charging pads make it so nobody gets stuck and we can check our fantasy baseball teams together. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more for way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. All right, we're back here on Fantasy Baseball Today, taking a closer look at these sophomore slumps. These are one of those things like contract years for baseball and fantasy baseball where you can't really quantify them, but some people think that they exist. So I, I tried to debunk this, so bear with me. We'll try and figure this out. Is the sophomore slump real? I looked at the top Rookie of the Year vote-getters from 2014 through 2018, so the past five years. Obviously, I couldn't use last year's results yet because I don't know how these players are going to perform in 2020. I looked at what each of these players did the following season. I used OPS for hitters. I used ERA plus for pitchers as the barometers, respectfully. Among the 79 players I looked at, four were significantly injured the next season. That leaves us with 75. Of the 75, 30 of those players either improved their OPS or ERA plus the next season. That's 40%. And that means the other 60% declined the next season. Some of the biggest declines, you can remember names like Trevor Story from 2016 to 2017, went from a 909 OPS to 765. Luis Castillo came up as a rookie, had a 3.12 ERA in 2017. The next season, a 4.30 in 2018, uh, some of the biggest improvements, Chris Bryant, 858 OPS in 2015, 939 in 2016. He won the MVP that season. And how can we forget Kyle Freeland, 4.10 ERA in 2017. He would have a 2.85 ERA the following season. So it's only five years worth of data, and I don't really know how reliable it is because I really just looked at the Rookie of the Year vote getters. But, you know, Scott, is this real? Is the sophomore slump real? And do these results impact your the way that you feel about it at all? I think it can be real, but it's it's difficult to predict who is going to be affected. In a case like Kyle Freeland or Harrison Bader, Adam Broad early up earlier, I see here in in your uh, research you have Daniel Palka. 
who hit 27 home runs two years ago with the White Sox. Guys like that, I have a hard time putting in the same category because generally speaking, people weren't thinking they were really as good as they showed as rookies. Like nobody was hyping them the following year. Nobody was investing greatly in them in fantasy. Bader, maybe some people were because he had some multi-category uh, contributions there but it's not like he was being drafted to be a stud the next year right so guys like that I'm, I'm not really considering the same way it's the ones who uh, like a trevor story who you know we we get we get used to them being impactful fantasy players and then the next year they're not really i, I cited brett lowry as kind of the all-time example for me eric hosmer actually that same year did the same thing. There was a string of a few years in a row where it seemed like somebody always did it. Jason Hayward is an example. Buster Posey is actually an example. Trey, took a Trey Turner. Back. Trey Turner took a big step back too. From Anthony 20, Rizzo, right? 2016 Rizzo, to 2017. Someone I always go to. So it's a thing. I, I think the kind of the way I've handled, I've learned to handle it is treating a rookie season particularly if it's a partial season like in the case of a fernando tatis with all the time he missed in with injury or, or Bo Bichette getting called up late in the year is to just not see those numbers at face value it kind of kind of approach it the same way as you would a guy who has a sudden break at like a mid-career breakout just that year okay it was great but there's not enough of a track record to support that he's always going to be that so you discount him some degree for it and it's not it's not a super scientific objective process you just kind of have to assess your own risk tolerance and and what you'd be willing to pass up to take a shot on the upside but you downgrade them to some degree and then uh and then hopefully you don't get burned too badly that's that's how i've that's how i've learned to approach the possibility of a sophomore slump because i do think I do think there's something to the idea that a player gets around the league, starts seeing the same pitchers a third and fourth time, and and they figure out better ways to attack him. The league just to adjust to him, he needs to adjust back, and sometimes he doesn't do it as quickly. Sometimes he never does it. I do think there's something to that, but it's it's one of those things that we don't have a great way of quantifying. Adam, there are. It feels like there are a lot of sophomores every year, but specifically this year, so many of them are going early on in drafts. Names like Fernando Tatis we've mentioned, Jordan Alvarez, Pete Alonso, Keston Hiura, Chris Paddock, Bo Bichette, Mike Soroka, Vlad Guerrero Jr., Eloy Jimenez, the list goes on and on. There are a lot of sophomore players that are being drafted inside the top 60, the top 70 picks this season, and those could be make-or-break picks. So, you know, how do you feel about this? And... You know, out of that group, like who's the sophomore that you're targeting most? It, it sounds to me like Chris Paddock. So maybe you reveal why you like Chris Paddock and, and why you might not be worried about a sophomore slump for him. I never really thought about a sophomore slump for pitchers. This was always, for me, a hitting exercise. And it's just like these really good hitters just had these bad sophomore years, and you got to start to wonder, like, what's going on there? And then you have, like, Anthony Rizzo. I'm not technically sure which year was his rookie year because he played a little bit in 2011, and he stunk. And then he had a very good 2012 year after he got traded to the Cubs. And then he came back and had his worst year, 2013, other than the 128 bats in 2011, like 742 OPS. And he's been a great player since then. So I actually, I buy very heavily into the junior bounce back after the sophomore slump. Um, 
you know, like Rafael Devers. But again, I, I think Devers, I don't remember which year was technically his rookie season. Um, you know, Aaron Judge came up a little bit before he had his rookie of the year season. Uh, so did he actually, so if you consider his rookie season, technically his sophomore season, I don't know if he had a sophomore slump. He had a sophomore explosion, but then the year after that, he wasn't as good. There was injury. So it's a little bit complicated. My, the point is hitters with small track records they have an opportunity to let you down, especially because you have to think if they finish top five in rookie of the year voting might mean they overperform. So you don't want to go too heavily into that. I, I really am very interested in Keston Hira. There's not that much there. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a leap of faith and he goes pretty early. Um, so the, the guy I'm taking the most is Paddock. I, I would say the hitters you mentioned, I don't remember ever all the names. Um, I would take Keston Hira. I do want to get some shares of him. Give me the names again, sir. Fernando Tatis, Jordan Alvarez, Pete Alonso, Kesson Hiura, Bo Bichette, Vlad Guerrero Jr., Eloy Jimenez is someone we've talked about more recently. There's uh, Victor Robles, Brian Reynolds, Oscar Mercado, Kevin Biggio. I like Vlad. His failures last year makes him valuable in drafts now, a draft value, I think. I like Tatis, even though I recognize all of the possibilities for failure. But I think he's... People might think I'm crazy for saying that. I think he might be the most talented hitter in baseball. Um, I mean, the most talented position player, just in terms of the things he can do on the field. So, Who are you saying? Fernando Tatis. Yeah, I mean, he may, he plays a more premium position than Ronald Acuna. So I see where you're coming from there. I'm not... Yeah, Lacuna is obviously agree, up there, but too. I see where you're coming from. Trout's a more talented hitter in terms of the, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, most yeah. many players are, but just raw talent. What you see from Fernando Tatis, you don't really see that in baseball a lot. So I still like him, even though you got to be a little nervous. The BABIP, the strikeouts, all that stuff. I don't have a great answer to your question, Frank, in terms of the hitter that I take the most. It's probably Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Because I think the pedigree is awesome still. I'm... I'm not throwing in the towel on him after one year in the bigs, and he's discounted a little bit. As much as we, I think, collectively worry about the price tag you have to pay for Tatis, I really would not be surprised if he is a top three pick and we're talking about him in the same conversation as Ronald Acuna next year. I don't well, think that would different? surprise anybody. Well, yeah, what's that different about him and Acuna last year? Because I know we felt... We were wrong, but we felt Acuna was going too early last year because he was a first-round pick for a lot of people, and we thought he should have been more like a second-round pick, whereas I think this year we think Tatis should be more like a third-round pick in Roto. I'm still willing to take him in the second round. Maybe Scott's like late second round. I don't know. No, it's, it's a difference between him and Acuna. Acuna. Acuna, I was kind of safeguarding against the sophomore slump, especially since strikeouts were uh, not something... We're, 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 a, we're a, a decent part of his profile, Acuna, but the data was sound on Acuna. With Tatis, it's more like the data doesn't come close to backing up what he did. I mean, he had this bloated BABIP. He put the ball on the ground a ton. He struck out well more than Acuna does or did in 2018 even. Um, and that's all pretty scary. It's, it's, it's a collection of things I don't like hitters doing, particularly in an environment that uh, favors guys who put the ball in the air. So, yeah, I, I, I think there are clearer reasons to be concerned about Tatis. And yeah, yet, too. 
and yet at with the ability he's shown at such a young age like it's it's totally plausible he takes a big step forward in his sophomore season that may not be so much reflected in the actual percentages the way he actually performs but you know the data kind of catches up to it because the uh the underlying skills improved i've wrote about tatis before and i i think that there are players Javier Baez is one that comes to mind where they can just outperform what is expected of them because, you know, based on underlying statistics, because they just have that much raw talent. And I think Tatis is one of those players where, you know, he might be able to overcome a massive strikeout rate, a massive swinging strike rate, kind of like Baez has done. It's just you feel more comfortable taking Baez, or at least I do, at this point because he's done it for so many years in a row. Fernando Tatis hasn't. He's only done it for 84 games. So that's you're the, saying you would you would straight up take Baez over Tatis, or you're saying the ADP? No, no, no. I, no, I wouldn't do that. I'm just saying I think I feel comfortable taking uh-huh. Baez at this point in his career, despite all of the downside in strikeouts and swinging strike rate, just because he's done it for so long at this point. Whereas yeah. Tatis is such a smaller sample size, you, you you know you kind of feel a little bit more nervous about having to take him where he goes in drafts. Where, you know, if he does it again oh, yeah. for another season, he's going to be a first-round pick, and, you know, his, and rightfully so. But uh, just, Scott, who are, who are some hitters or pitchers, uh, sophomore players that you tend to target that you're not really worried about as much as maybe somebody else's? Jordan Alvarez, I get a ton of. I get a ton of Alvarez. Um, Soroka, I tend to be more sanguine about than... Then, uh, Ooh, a, a thumbs down from Adam Azer. <laughs> yeah, no, I know Adam's not high on Soroka, and, and, I, and I, I get why. To do with I'm the just sophomore thing. I'm kind of, I'm kind of in a in a phase where I'm I'm trying to figure out just how much I value ground ball rate in a pitcher, and if it's as much as I think I do, then Soroka is going to come out looking pretty good. And I've I've talked before how I think there's a pretty good chance he takes a, a step forward strikeout wise anyway. Um, so those would probably be the biggest two. I, I think in general, I'm, I'm a little more concerned about these guys than the average fantasy player, certainly in the case of Tatis and Guerrero, but we've talked about Aloy Jimenez, how far apart you and I are on him, Frank. Don't do it, you being, Scott. You being more of an optimist, uh, Pete Alonzo, I'm generally staying away from, I'm not. Like for him, I think the downside is like a forty homer season, but coming off a fifty three homer season, it it'll be it'll be disappointing to some of the people who invest in him. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, for the most part, I'm not going aggressively after these players. Kesson Hira in a roto league is somebody I typically do target. Last season, oh, thirty eight yeah. homers and I don't know why I didn't seals. mention. I guess because he wasn't in the rookie of the year voting here, so I didn't. Yeah. See him. Which is weird. Yeah. I I don't know why he wasn't part of the rookie of the year voting. Maybe it's because he's a bad defender, but that doesn't matter for fantasy. He was yeah great last year. Uh, the strikeouts are an issue, but when he makes contact, Kesson Hira makes elite level contact. Great ballpark to hit in. Uh, plays a premium position second base, so he's someone I, I target in roto leagues. Eloy Jimenez, we've talked a lot about recently. Final fifty two games, he hit three oh eight with fourteen home runs, a nine seventeen OPS. That's a 40 homer pace over 150 games. Uh, his 917 OPS from August 1st on was 16th among outfielders and higher than Charlie Blackman, Ronald Acuna, 
and Cody Bellinger. The last now, name... Can, can can I mention, Keston Hero's kind yeah. of become an interesting case here because I feel like when we first started drafting, he was going in like the round seven range of a Roto League. And I was thinking, oh, look at how much we've learned since Brett Lawry. This is a much more reasonable point to take that gamble. And it was a gamble I was taking pretty often. But now his ADP, according to Fantasy Pros, is up to 49. First pick in the fifth round of a 12-team league. And that, to me, is... Like, that's not a price I'm going to be paying for Hira. He had 402 Babbitt and a 24.1% home run to fly ball rate. So the, yeah. the Babbitt was similar to Tatis. The home run to fly ball rate wasn't as high, but in both cases. The data supports a high Babbitt better for Hira than it does for Tatis. But why? He makes such hard contact. Case. Yeah, but if you're talking about Tatis hitting too many ground balls, why wouldn't he have... Because Hira's basically like a one-to-one ground ball to fly ball rate guy. Tatis hits more ground balls. Line drives are the ones that help Babbitt. Yeah, 24% line drive rate for Hira is very good. All right, but fewer fly balls. But okay, fair enough, line drive rate. Yeah, I'm okay paying that price for Hira, by the way. I I seem to... 40-something? Yeah, 49, I believe. Like, first pick of the fifth round in a Roto League. I don't have a problem paying that price. The last name I just wanted to give a shout-out to, Brian Reynolds, has an ADP of 179.8. Yes, it sucks that he plays for the Pittsburgh Pirates, but... I think he's someone that can contribute regardless of format. In a head-to-head points league, he had 37 doubles last year as a rookie. Decent walk rate, just over 8%. And then in Roto, he's a late-round batting average contributor, which is typically hard to find. He hit 314 in the majors. He's a career 312 hitter in the minors. 296 expected batting average. That was in the 94th percentile. Brian Reynolds is a name that I typically target You know, in a Roto league as my fourth or fifth outfielder. And it's a it's a yeah. fair price tag where you can get him. I don't I don't know why he wouldn't give you a good batting average. Yeah, that's all he's ever showed at every level. Right, right. So. It does seem well suited for it. It's it's a question of how much power he develops because there's not much speed there. I I find nobody seems to be that enthusiastic about Reynolds. He just kind of sits there. This guy, Scott. Long. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 kind of rubbed off on me. Where well, if nobody else wants him, I guess I shouldn't want him either. But that's 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 dumb. So Reynolds I or Edmund? That. Reynolds or Edmund? Reynolds, baby, let's go. Um, nah, Edmund definitely in a categories league. You could you could maybe talk me into Reynolds in a points league, but considering Edmund's second base eligible, he's more. I'm going to need him more in all likelihood. Okay. All right. That's our conversation on sophomores and some players that we are targeting here. I did want to quickly do this prospect evaluation on Logan Gilbert, starting pitcher of the Seattle Mariners. We got this from our Apple Podcast review from Shine Dog. Continue to send those in. Give us a five-star Apple Podcast review. And you know what? While you're at it, tell a friend to tell a friend about fantasy baseball today. Tell one friend to listen to. Don't tell someone in your league, obviously, because you don't want them getting all the... Tell someone in your league. Well, then it's it's a little Frank, bit harder. You these know? people, they might not have any friends outside the league. You know, you never know. That's fair. You don't know what these people were like <laughs> as sophomores in high school. It, it's, it's hard <laughs> enough to find. <laughs> Tell everybody you know to listen to fantasy baseball today. All right, Logan Gilbert, first round pick in 2018 for the Mariners. He's an older prospect, Scott, at 23 years old. He's dominant across three different levels last year: single A, high A, double A. Finished with a 2-1-3 ERA overall, 0.95 whip, 165 strikeouts, and 135 innings pitched to the gentleman who called me out on, on our podcast reviews for 
not saying innings. I'm going to try my best to say innings more. Uh, you can't even do it when you're trying your I best. I know, it's man. It's still just, an E in there. There's something wrong. With, I, I just, <laughs> I walk around the house just saying the word to try and get better at it. I, I just can't. This is how I talk. <laughs> hey, Frank, what, what was the name of that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio where he like has like the token that spins and he goes into like... Oh, you mean... Seat? Inception? <laughs> yeah, that one. Okay, I just wanted to see how you said it. Did it sound right? Yeah, it did. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, doesn't make any sense. Back to Logan Gilbert. He His command was solid across all three levels last year. 2.7 walks per nine or less in each. He's got a mid-90s fastball. Slider and change are above average pitches for him. Swinging strike rate looks promising. Uh, the one thing that worries me, Scott, is that he's a fly ball pitcher, which could be bad in today's day and age of baseball, but... I guess pitching in Seattle in the AL West is something that could help with that. Uh, he's your 45th ranked prospect, Scott, in your top 100 back-to-back with Spencer Howard. What do you think about Logan Gilbert? Logan Gilbert seems to be one of those prospects. And and look, he's regarded as a prospect. I, I think every publication I've seen has him as a top 100 prospect. But judging by the numbers and how much he moved up the minor league ladder last year, uh, you know, finishing with a 213 ERA, 0.95 with 11 Ks per nine. And one of those stops was the California League, one of the most hitter-friendly high A. He had a 173 ERA and 12 starts there. Uh, yet, in spite of those numbers, he seems to rank lower than you'd think, given that. Um, it There seems to be a feeling, looking at the scouting reports, that his breaking balls aren't quite up to snuff yet. He has a, He has four pitches which is good, but beyond the fastball, none of them are great yet. So even though he's already to double A, he's already 23, you know, there's a sense he's not quite a finished product. I tend to buy into the numbers more than anything else when evaluating a prospect who pretty much is universally regarded as a definite prospect. Uh, you know, it's not just the numbers that are drawing my attention to him, but also people are admitting he's a prospect. So I, I think the combination of those two things is promising and it makes Gilbert somebody who personally I want a lot of. But he's not he's not getting hyped to the extent you might think if you just look at the numbers. If there is a 2020 season, Scott, do you think we see him this year? I do not. Partly because of where the Mariners find themselves in the contention cycle right now, like even with expanded playoffs, they just got no shot. Right. So it doesn't make so sense to start his clock. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Someone I'm excited about as well, for what it's worth. He went 242nd in a startup dynasty draft that I did about a month ago. Uh, I was the one who took him. He was my eighth starting pitcher at that point. So, uh, yeah, someone that I'm excited about. Adam, anything to add on Logan Gilbert? Yes, thank you for mentioning me in uh, one of your Facebook comments. Join our Facebook group, Fantasy Baseball Today. There you go. Th- mm-hmm. Doesn't really have anything to do with Logan Gilbert, but <laughs> thanks, Adam. Did you think I was going to have anything to add on Logan Gilbert? Have, have we met? Uh, sometimes you surprise me, Adam. Have you met? <laughs> yes, we've met. Okay. I haven't met. I've, yeah, never, have... I've never encountered Frank in person. Remember, Adam, we did a fantasy football industry draft together, and we traded draft picks before the draft started. And, yeah. <laughs> and Jake Seeley was so mad at us. <laughs> oh, right. You really messed things up for him. I think I won yeah. the championship that year. And oh, nice little, gosh, nice little pat on like, the back for myself there. Oh, that is horrible to hear. I, I traded away the, the championship pick. I beat Jamie basically. Eisenberg in the finals. 
So remind him of that on the football podcast. (laughs) By the way, Frank is going to be writing a column called The Leftovers. And now your job is to uh, watch the show, The Leftovers, because Scott and I both love it quite a bit. I've heard good things, but I, I haven't gotten around to it yet. It's excellent. I'm currently spamming The Sopranos, which is a lot of fun. Fantasy baseball at CBSI.com. Let's see how many of these questions we can get to. From Famous Jones. Hello, Dorn, Plummer, Ansara, and Campbell. Ah, those feel like the silence Arizona is Cardinals. <laughs> so when I looked no, this up, no. I found, I don't know if this is accurate, I found that they are actors who played Klingons in Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dorn. I think of Michael Dorn, who was Worf, of course. So I can I can confirm. That's that who you think one. of. You don't think of Roger Dorn? I don't. I think of I think of Michael Dorn, who played Worf, of show, Roger man. Dorn. I guess that shows where I am on the nerd jock <laughs> spectrum, huh? Wouldn't the player who normally would bat eighth in the batting order before the pitcher be the biggest beneficiary of the National League getting a DH? I would figure the DH would be a better hitter than the eighth hitter, pushing them to the ninth position in the batting order, giving them an opportunity to see better pitches with the player batting first in the order on deck. What are your thoughts? I thought this was actually a fair point. The problem is there aren't really a lot of fantasy-relevant eight hitters in the National League when I was kind of just scrolling through roster resource. The, The few that I found were Gavin Lux, Carson Kelly, Luis Arias, Ahmed Rosario, and Carter Keboom. I would imagine it's not as sticky of a, as a, of a lineup spot either as like one, two, three are, you know, like, yeah, things are going to change. Get moved in and out of it a lot. And of course saying they're the biggest beneficiary. I mean, they don't benefit as much as the guy who now gets an everyday lineup spot because of the DH role. So that's kind of, you know, just being technical there. They're clearly not the biggest beneficiaries, but they are maybe an overlooked beneficiary. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps the leadoff hitter is another beneficiary. He will now have more players to drive in, in theory. I could see Ahmed Rosario being, you know, someone who actually benefits from this, seeing Let some better pitches. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Ahmed Rosario continues to get a little bit better, better and better. Tiny, tiny increments, yes. Not that, not that small, but not that <laughs> far from that. It wouldn't surprise me if he's really good this year. He gets caught that's stealing terrible. too much. That's my biggest issue. So Bold that's take from Adam. <laughs> <laughs> he is he is getting better though. Next one from Alex. I'm just gonna go with Alex F. I'm not gonna try this one. Hey, Fantastic Four. Although there are only three of us today, a few shows ago you recommended head-to-head leagues should look at doing double headers to play two matchups per week as a way to balance out the short season schedule. Does this only work in a weekly lineup league? Or could you set up a daily lineup league where you can have a daily lineup that is different in each of your matchups? Mm. I, I feel like this would get way too complicated. I've never done it. I've never seen it. So I can't answer that. That's basically playing two leagues at once. If you're setting... It's the same team, but you're setting two different lineups uh, in two different yeah, matchups. I don't think you can do it. Yeah, I don't think you can set two different lineups for a scoring period. I think you just set the one lineup to go against the two opponents. Oh, yeah. No. Right. Nope. Alex F. Nope. Alex fail. Sorry, Alex. Not going to happen. This is from Wes in Oakland. He's following up from yesterday. We answered 
uh, we answered this again. Um, he was asking us about spending all of our fab dollars on prospects in a Yahoo Keeper League, and he followed up with this. My commissioner told me in order to have bidding awards and to enable everyone to have a chance at prospect call-ups so we can miss a day or two while on vacation or something, he made the player pool just guys on the 40-man roster. Because waivers run daily and there are $0, he wanted bidding wars where everyone can strategize how much they want to bid rather than managers just putting out a $0 or $1 bid for a prospect and stashing until the call-up. It is a personal preference, he stated. And to be clear, it is not Yahoo's default. So apologies to Yahoo out there. That is not their default. We mentioned that on yesterday's show. As for the actual logic behind bidding all $100, Adam was very much against this. But since it's daily waivers with $0 bids, it's a lot easier to survive with $0 after spending it all. So for me, it's an upside play because if the keeper hits, they are an incredible value, more so than the advantage I'd get from being able to win whichever two-start pitcher I want. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense, Adam? Yeah, I, I think he's he's in a 14-team league, as I recall. Because I play in a 12-team league with $0 bids every day. I could not imagine spending $100, $90, whatever, on one player. Uh, even though I can pick up players every night for $0. Well, I can't necessarily because other people are going to be bidding on them too. If I have no money to bid, I'm not going to get all the guys I want. But in a 14-team league, maybe the waiver wire just isn't really that good. And you can... You know, you can get by doing this with keeping your roster mostly intact. And obviously, there are the keeper ramifications. So, yes, if you're going to tell me that you're going to get Wander Franco for $100 and put yourself at a major disadvantage this year, but get the top prospect in baseball on your team and take any lumps this year, but have him as a great keeper value next year, okay, I can see the logic there. Uh, one thing I just can't, I cannot see you really having good roster flexibility if you don't have more than like, if you don't have more than ten fab dollars to use for most of the year, I I think you're overestimating the value of fab dollars in a league where fab runs daily, in a league where it runs. I have a league like that. We we play in a league like that. Okay. You can't get my, ten bucks. I I know I play in a lot of leagues with you like that, and my impression is the same as his, where I'm happy to dump a very large sum of money on the the one player who I think is going to be the significant the most significant ad How I can make all year because it running every night. I know not everybody is going to be engaged every night and there How will much? be great. How much? Uh, like if I don't feel like I'd be at that significant of an advantage if <laughs> I had $0 left and everybody else had a hundred. You, I know you because would never throw look at how many, look at how many fab dollars are left over. Oh, I almost at the end never of the have season. a lot. I, I Neither do I, but I'm saying the majority of the people do have a lot left over. So you, so that league that the one league that I'm talking about that you and I are both in with zero fab dollar every night, a lot of people in that league don't really participate because it's not for no, any money. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about any specific league. I'm talking about across all of my leagues okay. that use fab. All right. So, and they're, I, they're competitive industry leagues. Okay. It's just people are generally too cautious with their fab dollars and you know, as the season plays out, they become less useful. But I, and- I mean, I put so many bids down that like I'll spend eight bucks on this guy and six bucks on that guy. And then by the all-star break, holy crap, I got $30 left. It's really not that big of a deal. But, but, you, but, but you've I've won used- a lot of those players. Yeah, right? I, I have. And you absolutely. ended up dropping a lot of them right out. Yeah, and but that's like, one way I to think get you, the season. 
I think the two of us are much more aggressive on the waiver wire than the average fan, certainly than the average fantasy player, but I'm talking about even like an industry type. Like, don't you want to be that hyper though? If of you course, that's why I keep doing it. But, but you can't, <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. You can't be aggressive if you just bid all your money on one guy. I, I'm saying if you're if you're the type of person who is constantly playing the waiver wire and stacking up bids most nights so that you know you know what i mean by stacking up bids right like you put in yeah. a bid for the guy you want most and then you yeah. put a, a bid for the guy you want most in the second the guy you want second most and then you know you end up with like 30 30 uh 30 uh waiver claims put in um if you're that guy, if you're the type of guy who does that, you'll win a lot more players for $0 than you think you will. I think ultimately it just comes down to knowing your league. He said that other players in this league play uh, bid $100 on prospects, so that means everyone's kind of at the same disadvantage because they're all True. playing with $0. So True. ultimately, if that's what your league does and you've had success or other people have had success blowing all their fab, then do it. That's what I would say to that. Uh, but... We're going to wrap it there, boys. Today is National Hamburger Day, by the way, so make it happen out there. Really? I, well, they have a day for everything. It's like you wake up, oh, it's National Juice Box Day, and you got to go out and get a juice box. I don't know why I use juice box, but go out and eat a burger. Not, like, a, not let, a chicken let me know burger it's either. National uh, Raisins Day. Every day is National Raisins Day for you. For Adam and Scott, I am Frank. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back again on Friday. Bye bye.